Welcome listeners to Sunday Music Soapbox, Season 3, Episode 4. Ken Lockie, Cowboy of the New Wave Frontier. If you're into New Wave 80s music, post-punk music, the UK music scene, this is the episode for you. But before we get started with our interview, I'd like to take a few minutes to set the background and kind of set the scene of our story. In 1977, the UK punk rock movement, led by The Clash and The Sex Pistols, had exploded. Yet only one year later brought the fateful demise of The Sex Pistols, who were so punk rock and whose fire burned so bright that they burned out almost as fast as they started, with only one full-length album recorded. This almost instantly signaled the birth of a new style which became known as the post-punk movement. The post-punk music style was slightly similar to punk rock, yet with a newer twist of avant-garde sensibility and contained elements derived from non-rock influences. The UK birthed incredible post-punk bands like Joy Division, Gang of Four, Bauhaus, and many more, who had the aggression of punk at times, yet seemed much more cerebral in approach and delivery. And although it was the end of the Sex Pistols, out of the ashes came John Lydon's new project, Public Image Limited, or PIL, or PIL for short. At about the same time, there was another new genre of music being born. This new movement had a different vibe. Being weird and bizarre became more norm in this new style. It also took the energy of punk music and rechanneled it into a more danceable format. Advances in technology allowed the synthesizer to equal the role of the electric guitar in bands now, which helped to create this new style, which became dubbed as the New Sound, or New Wave. The Go-Go's, Devo, Wall of Voodoo, B-52s, Echo and the Bunnymen are just a few examples. Today's episode features two very special people who were in the thick of those scenes when they happened. They were there in New York City during one of its most creative times when live music and dance clubs were flourishing and the city was exploding with an artistic, creative culture, perhaps unparalleled ever since. Hailing from Newcastle, musician and singer Ken Lockie was signed by Virgin Records to put a group together with his songwriting talents. Out of this came the band Cowboys International. This band saw an incredible lineup of talent during its relatively short existence, including original Clash drummer Terry Chimes, Adam Ant guitarist Marco Peroni, and original Clash guitarist Keith Levine. Shortly after, Ken released a solo album entitled The Impossible, which featured Simple Minds lead singer Jim Kerr on a track, which led to a trade-off as Ken then in turn recorded vocals on the Simple Minds album, Sons and Fascination. During this time, Pill guitarist Keith Levine invited Ken over to the studio during the recording of Pill's Metal Box album. Some dabbling was done in the studio, the tape rolled, and Ken contributed to the PIL track you are hearing now in the background entitled Radio 4. PIL then invited Ken to New York City to do some recording, and that is where Ken met his amazing and talented wife. Laura Lockie hails from Brooklyn, New York, where she was active in music and the club scene. As fate would have it, Laura met Ken from an introduction by DJ Mark Kamens at the hot New York City dance club, Dance Ateria. In 1985, Ken produced a dance EP project for Epic Records called Go For Your Gun, featuring the song Get On Top, with Laura singing vocals. A year previous, Ken found wonderful success with a dance track he produced and co-wrote, entitled The Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. 
That track was featured on a popular breakdancing various artist album entitled Street Mix and became a big dance hit in clubs across the United States. I met Ken and Laura 10 years ago, totally by chance one day, while I was randomly looking for used vinyl records in the classified ads. Laura answered the door and led me into a room full of some of the most amazing records I had ever seen, and it became obvious to me. This was no normal record sale. This led to a long conversation about music with Laura, which led to coffee, food, laughs, meeting Ken, and I soon realized just how incredibly cool they are. Over the last few years, we've been able to visit more and I've learned so much more about these two wonderful people and their contribution to the 1980s new wave music scene. If you love new wave music, post-punk music, Sex Pistols, Pill, The Clash, the UK music scene, you are really going to love this interview. Be sure to check out our Instagram and Facebook pages and follow us at Sunny Music Soapbox to see the historical photos relevant to this interview. So here we go. My interview with two amazing people who were there when the new wave scene was booming in New York City, Ken and Laura Lockie. Uh, I am so excited to have with me today two of my friends. They became my friends first and I found out later they were wonderful people in the music industry. And, and, um, and we have Ken and Laura Lockie today. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Chad. Very good, Chad. Thank you. Thanks for uh, being on here with me today. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So I want to start, first of all, we have to tell this story of, of how we first met, at Laura anyway. And um, you, you remember this, right? Of course. Yeah. And uh, I was, I was uh, looking for uh, vinyl records and I was looking through like, I don't know if it was the local paper or somewhere or Craigslist. And I saw this, you know, classic rock records sale, you know, at my house, come browse, whatever, and you know, stiff records, this and that, whatever. And um, I drove over there, and um, and I walked, and you, you, know, you, you answered the door, and I walked in, you had all these amazing records, and I was like, how, you know, how is this, like, stiff records, like, first pressings of things, and A&M, and all that stuff, and and uh, and so I, I I stayed a lot longer than, <laughs> than, I, than I planned on, right? You I know it was that? like three hours. I was not <laughs> expecting it. I had to give him food. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think we, you know, we we're talking about that. And I think my, my love for the, that, that music and that era that of course that, that you guys are involved in, uh, but uh, just everything that you had. And I started asking you questions. You were very, very kind. And uh, and you're like, you want some coffee? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think, uh, I, I think Ken was, Ken was, maybe being elusive at the time. He wasn't sure of this guy in the house looking at records, but, or may I don't know, was Ken even there? I don't remember. I think he was. He you know, <laughs> was probably working from home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you had all those things, stiff records and stuff. And I, I was like, well, how do you have all this stuff? And then, um, so, so tell me, uh, I mean, I remember most of it, but you, you worked at stiff records, right? I did. I worked for their office in New York city and I started in shipping and um, I just had a, you know, rabid interest in the music and I was out, you know, on the scene. So I, I ended up doing college promotion and then um, I got to, uh, you know, get a couple of people signed uh, to the label, including my big claim to fame is Men Without Hats, funny enough, yeah. because, um, you know, they were from Montreal and my, so was my dad. So, uh, you know, hmm. I was intrigued uh, by Les Hommes Sans Chapeau, which is, you know, French. So, yeah. and yeah, and just their sound. I just thought it was really new and exciting. So, 
they, Stiff never did end up releasing their record. They sold it. Um, but, you know, the, the Oops. right? <laughs> well, uh, that's, well, yeah, yeah, you got that train started anyway. That's awesome. I remember that. And, uh, yeah, and then you, you were at Stiff for a while. And who were some of your favorite, what were some of your favorite records that, that, that were printed there? Wow. Well, I, you know, I was a big fan of Lenny Lovitch. Lena Lovitch was really exciting because uh, she kind of ushered in that uh, dance oriented rock uh, yeah. period, which yeah. was really cool. Um, and who else? I guess Reckless Eric, who's still out there. You know, he still plays gigs. We saw him like in the last few years. He's uh, he was exciting. Well, and- what was the first uh, single that Stiff released? You know? uh, Stiff One is Reckless Eric. He's Stiff One. Oh, yeah. Wow. Cool. Very cool. And then you um you told me that you you Laura you went on to Anim Records for a bit and worked there. Yes. Um I was a college college um music promoter and there were there was a, a crew of us and I'd say maybe eight na- nationally and then they condensed it into uh one job, one full-time job. It had been part-time, so I was doing, you know, other stuff to kind of support my interest in the music industry in that job and they condensed it to one full-time job which i did not get so that was that was it for my major label you know sorry so yeah yeah um so and you from are you from jersey where are you from again i'm from brooklyn oh brooklyn okay forgive me Ooh, i you know i just got a bunch of people going Ooh, you yeah. got that one wrong i knew <laughs> i knew that but uh, yeah brooklyn uh, amazing music and, and in my opinion the the greatest hip-hop so you're you were kind of where did your music career start like you singing and playing like where how did you start well that's funny because my very first band was a rap band it was like an all-female rap band and we were called the amazon seven and that was the first time that i had performed with a group um i had sung before but that was like the first time that you know we would go out and play clubs and things like that and it didn't last very long because it was like you know it's like herding cats seven women in a band is too many i'm sorry (laughs) yeah oh wow yeah Yeah. of course i know it's amazing like like the go-go's have been together for so long yeah um that's awesome and uh okay so at some point uh you, you meet ken now ken were you you were coming over and playing, was it with Cowboys International or what, what was your first uh, introduction? And how did you meet Laura? When I was living in New York in 1981. Okay. Uh, I was with, uh, came over with Pill in, right. initially. Um, the idea was to do some recording um around october november that year um so while we were waiting for things to get worked out for recording uh was hanging out in new york and um i think uh, we met then in either one of the clubs either at a bowling alley or at uh danceteria I think Danceteria is where we got introduced um, by the DJ there, Mark Caymans. Awesome. About Mark Caymans. Who was Mark Caymans, right? Um, well, Mark was the producer of Madonna's first single, Everybody. Right. And uh, it had been a pretty large success. And 
Mark's career was pretty much taken off, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, Mark was Mark was like one of the prime DJs at Danceteria, and uh, he's a very friendly guy. And uh, you know, traveling into the going into the club, we would often spend a bit of time with Mark in his booth while he was working and such, and playing us different records he got from the UK and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's how that whole scene was just really a lot of things going on, you know? I can only imagine being in New York City during that time and uh, uh, just where everything was hitting, you know, at that time. I, yeah. I, I'm going to rewind a little bit, Ken, um, and go back. Um, so you're, you're from Manchester, yeah? No, I'm from Newcastle. Oh, forgive me. I see. I'm I'm O for two, guys. I knew all this. It's just been forever <laughs> since we talked. How did you start out? And you know, you started tinkering with with instruments and and writing stuff. How how did that start for you? Um. Yeah, I started. You know, playing uh, playing saxophone. You know, I was living in London and uh, in the seventies. I played saxophone for a couple of years, just playing along with records and stuff. I tried to go to auditions that I found in either the music papers, but, you know, sax and indie bands, there, there wasn't really much for a sax player to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up um, living in a squat in Regent's Park, or close by Regent's Park, in a Royal Commission property. And um, I took over this garage and uh, I built a studio in there. I built a wall with, uh, with a window, doors and such in the garage space and um, acquired a piano, uh, borrowed a Revox tape recorder. Uh, there was part of a drum kit there and um, I had a horn and there were some other instruments. Some of the other guys who lived there were in a band. So I started to record on the Revox, um, just bouncing from track to track. Just down the road from there was a guy called um, Sebastian Conran, who was um, the son of Terence Conran, who owned a big chain of stores in London Habitat. Um, and this property they had is, is a real prime location in Regent's Park you know, one of those classic architecture places, huge home. And uh, Bernie Rhodes and a lot of the Clash were staying in there. Their producer, Mickey Foote, they ran their T-shirt operations out of there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was living in the squat, making no money except from like nine pounds a week from social benefit. Um so I was just hustling, you know? Yeah. And I'd go down there. I'd hang out with them. They had a pinball machine in the basement. I'd hang out. We'd, we'd talk. I had met Keith Levine at that point. Um, we tried. We would had some recording sessions in, in London. He liked some of the tapes I'd made at that studio in the squat. And um, 
I found someone to represent me and started hustling for a, a recording contract. And, um, you know, as that whole punk scene evolved, the pistols broke up and, uh, Keith was, uh, became a member of public image and, uh, I got attention from Virgin, I guess, with those connections and the fact that my representative was playing music in Virgin's uh, offices over in uh, Notting Hill. So, you know, just keeping the hustle going, um, they offered me a, a record contract because I seemed to be someone who could, you know, write, record and have songs so off we went and not back then not not everybody and their grandmother could do that those days you know you now people make records in their bathroom at home right it was um the the tape recorder was was really great the revox yeah um you know you could bounce a couple of times to maybe eight tracks but um yeah i played mostly everything myself on those original demos and uh you know, just kept doing it until I got it right. Cause you, you don't get any, you, there's no overdubs on that thing. You know, it's one take, you know? Yeah. So it was good fun. Good, good discipline. So you had, so you had this deal and had the, had the name Cowboys International or the, the concept of it come up or you just. No, it was an invention after we got, a, after I got a contract. You had some drummer guy that you knew was lived in one of the buildings you lived in there. Well, I I can't remember how I got to know uh, Terry Chimes, but I must have been through that Clash connection. Um, Terry would Terry would be around. He had a car. He you know he'd show up for a bit in the afternoon for a visit, go away, and and um, so he played on he played you know on the first album and did a ton of shows with us and stuff, um, but. Terry was around a long time and Terry would, Terry just liked to play, you know? So, uh, yeah. I had gigs or recordings and he would come along and, uh, and, and do the job. So you put Cowboys International together and is this, you were just writing songs and then it all kind of just kind of yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. I got the contract without really having a whole, you know, portfolio, a big portfolio of work prior to then I'd, I'd done some demos at a guy called Polly Palmer. Uh, he had a studio in Fulham. Polly was like from a prog rock keyboardist who shared a place with Mitch Mitchell from the Hendrix experience. And so those two guys would kind of listen to my songs and help me record some basic demos. And I had like five of those at the time. I didn't have a lot of songs, but when I got the contract, at that point, I had to leave the squat and I was living in East London in Bow. I just sat down and wrote, you know, another six songs in in like a week. What's the first Cowboys International song that you wrote that went on the album? Um, the first single I did with Mick Glossop was uh, Aftermath. OK. And that was... Um, and that was, yeah, that was one of my kind of uh, compositions where 
I just, you know, I got a, I got a circle of fifths progression in that song that just goes around totally through the entire circle of fifths with, you know, my concept that I was pushing on the band was you're just going to play two notes while we do all these changes. And um, so, you know, I was a very pushy kind of uh, band leader and uh, had some ideas that uh, I insisted that they play. And uh, that's that's (laughs) how those things came around. So you record the record. Cowboys International presents the original Sin. And what's unique about this album, I'm holding it in my hand right now, um, is the cover. There's no, there's not really cover art. It's just the track listings. And on the back side, it's, it's a big, you know, basic, basic font, but it's a multicolor, orange, purple, green on the other side, same thing. Yeah. And, and I think you mentioned this to me before, but what, what was the idea behind that? I mean, that was actually probably at the time very modern to do. It was um, it was uh, unique, that's for sure. Yeah, um, I don't think it really played out quite as successfully as we thought. But um, at the time, Virgin, their their operations guys matched us up with a designer, this guy Pierce Marchband. Pierce was the um, art director for Time Out magazine in London, mm-hmm. and uh, Pierce's claim to fame was uh, uh, the rounded helvetica font <laughs> and right. uh so that's what we that's what naturally that's what we had on the on the cover for the font work was that rounded helvetica stuff nice that he liked nice. and um he came with this idea of a of a red plastic sleeve and the idea was that the lettering on the cover underneath would be fluorescent or bright so that it would shine through the transparency um, and say one thing when you had the transparency on and another when you pulled it out. Yeah. But all that kind of got lost over time. The the red transparency sleeve was very limited. After that, it just went to the the print, which is just black and fluorescent colors. So you did put out the red one for a bit. Yeah. How yeah, many they did that? first run. I don't know. They did it. 10k run or something like that the record of course you ended up uh promoting probably a couple songs on it and i think we talked about this the first track pointy shoes features you playing some harmonica riffs on there yeah and i imagine that you know was that the first track because people are like oh that's unique that's going to get some attention with the harmonica well we'd been playing that song in clubs up and down the country and so we knew that it 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 was a solid solid track with any crowd it it had a heavy sound a lot of distortion a lot of a lot of complicated chords dense sound with that harmonica that whole kick him in the head um, kind of vocal and um yeah it 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 worked well for us in in live gigs okay let's take a quick pause And let's take a listen to Pointy Shoes by Cowboys International.
And again, that was Pointy Shoes by Cowboys International. Let's get back to my interview with Ken and Laura Lockie. One of my favorite songs on the record is Part of Steel. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that song? Um, yeah, that was just written, um, you know, me sitting at a desk with with ideas. Um, I was doing the uh, the William Burroughs or the, uh, you know, cut up words thing. And I had these words cut them up. I'd heard Bowie used it. It seemed like a great technique to come up with things that I wouldn't otherwise think of. And um, that's how that song came around. The sound was developed in, um, you know, with a live gig, we had a, a Farfisa organ and a Wasp um, analog synthesizer. So we had a very limited um, sound range, um, you know, bass, drums and guitar. Yeah. Uh, but in the studio, we... We went into, uh, I was using all these JC chorus amps, right? Um, so we had a lot of chorus effects. And uh, in the studio, we opened that sound up to get what you have on the record today, which is this very broad, um, kind of uh, syncopated um, uh, key sounds. Gotcha. And then the song structure over the top, yeah, that worked well in, in shows, too. That was a popular one in our shows as well.
lots of energy on that one. The personnel on there, obviously, you have Keith Levine on on plays guitar and Wish, and and by the way, rest in peace to Keith Levine. Uh, yeah. uh, what? Tell me about his performance on the record and and, and your relationship <laughs> on that. Well, that song was a song that I wrote for some. Um, I don't know. I had these theories, you know, and uh, so my theory was as as little music theory as I knew. I liked the uh, the F chord, and I knew that the F chord and the B major chord did not sound good together. So I found a um, a diminished uh, B chord, and the diminished chord is is a repeating chord up and down. Um, the keyboard that is essentially the same. There's only four variations of it. But um, so I put those two together and um, we built that harmonic kind of um, model that it goes through a few a progression, but it, it has that discord and then it comes back, you know. And um, I wrote that at the outset, living in bow. Um, and was reading all these Bertolt Brecht librettos and stuff and um, kind of used some of the feel from uh, I got from those readings to try to inject into the lyrics. Um, and Keith came in because, um, you know, Keith was very, very instrumental in 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 making the connection with Virgin. And subsequently when, for that album, we were holed up in Advision Studios in the center of London for two or three weeks. And so we, he agreed to come over as a session and play a session. And, uh, you know, um, when he came in, he brought his uh, Travis Bean wedge with him. And uh, Keith was Keith was really brilliant in the studio, and um, you know he he kind of turned that room upside down. He stood on the couch, you know. <laughs> Most people like going to a room and sit on the couch. He stood on the couch. He got his guitar jacked in, and he began to direct the engineer and producer alike to give him sound and level and then bring him into the track. And he played it live in the control room, two takes. And um, he just shredded stuff. He went through it and he just did a whole, you know, a whole scheme that only he knew what was going on. Um, he stunned the room pretty much with that performance. It was um, technique art and mischief all in one <laughs> yeah sounds great so dennis had quite a job on his hand because when he had to go and then listen to the the raw takes that he'd done and find a way for them to fit in musically to the to the bass tracks we'd gotten you know which were you know everyone else in the band was following what what key is it in and you know what what are the sections and we did have a big section in the middle which was 
you know, supposed to be like, sound like a helicopter taking off or something. Um, and that's where his solo landed. But Dennis actually reversed some of his sounds and then then flew them in to fit in to that sequence. But Dennis showed his chops and his skills. And Dennis was a very, very skilled producer. Yeah, we're talking about Dennis McKay for the for the audience. Right. Real quick, let's go through the rest of the personnel on, on the album. You got, of course, Terry Chimes, original drummer for The Clash on drums, uh, Jimmy Hughes on bass, Evan Charles pianos, and Rick Jacks. Tell me about those guys. Well, um, Terry, uh, we've mentioned, right? Yes. Terry was playing with us at that time. Uh, he still was. He, he did that first album. Probably later that year, he... You know, he left to go join uh, Generation X with Billy Idol and Tony James. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but for that album, he was around. Evan Charles was uh, a, f- a friend of Jimmy, lived close to Jimmy in Streatham. And uh, Evan was a really, really talented musician and still is. Um, and Jimmy was on bass and Jimmy was a really lovely bass player. Um, the Rick Jacks, uh, credit is, is kind of the soft spot there because Rick never actually played on the record. Rick had, um, he played some gigs with us, but, uh, he, he wasn't really, um, a long time member of the, of the group. We had a, we had several guitarists in there. Alan Rawlings was the first guitarist. He played on um, Aftermath and a, a few of the singles we did after that. But um, Alan left the band and then Rick came in after him, who was touring with us in the spring that year, I guess. And so he had a credit on the album. But primarily the guitar work was Evan. Gotcha. So you you just credited Rick because he'd done some work with the band and wanted to give him some credit. Yeah, that was nice of you. You're, you're a nice guy, Ken. <laughs> I don't care what Laura says. Laura, I, I meant to ask you: um, Had you heard at all? Because I know. Oh uh, yeah, you heard I Cowboys or? Yeah, no, I love the original Sin. I, I I had heard it and I played it all the time. Uh, and so I was, I was definitely starstruck when I first met Ken. I was like, Oh my God, That's so cool. <laughs> it's him. When you first saw him or did you see him play or was he just hanging out at the club? Well, he was, uh, well, he was hanging out in clubs, but he was also recording with, uh, with pill in this place called park South studio in Manhattan. And it was going dismal. It was just not going well. Ken, I wanted to mention um, you guys are on the old gray whistle test. And for people that don't know what that is, it's a British television, like musical entertainment show and features. They featured anybody and everybody who was in the scene, um, you know, anywhere from people from UK, like Elton John or whatever, all the way to Tom Petty, uh, Bob yeah. Marley. Um, I, I had a DVD of like the greatest part of old gray whistle test. So, yeah. After I met, I, I I looked I looked it up, and of course, with the with the wonders of YouTube, you can find a lot of things these days. And uh, you guys are on there doing uh, pointy shoes, and also today, and right. I said I think the day was January twenty second, nineteen eighty. Um, yeah. What do you remember from that session on the old gray whistle test? Um, well, it was in Shepparton Studios, 
Um, and at the time, we had yet a different guitarist. <laughs> and this time it was uh, Marco um, from Rima Rima. He was with Adam and the Ants, too. Right. Marco Peroni, right? Yeah, Marco oh, Peroni. Oh, wow, yeah. Who so, makes terrible beer. That beer sucks. <laughs> yeah, Marco was playing guitar with us for a while. Um, not too long, but and you know, he came and said, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go join Adam and the Ants. There was something going on there. So he went off to join Adam and the Ants and they had a few hits very soon thereafter, but at that for that T V show, Marco was playing. And it looks like top. Terry's on drums on that. Yeah. And uh does that did that I mean, I imagine that being on that show helped help the band's exposure quite some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We 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 had some you know good shows around around that time, and later that year we we did a European tour. We went over to Paris for a bit, did some TV shows in in Brussels, and then we did a tour of Holland and Germany and and Brussels. You know, these were pretty small tours. We'd, we'd have like six or eight dates and we'd be back in London and then we'd have another six or eight dates and we'd go back out. And we went on like that for a couple of months and we had a residency over at uh, uh, the Nashville in West Kensington on Thursdays for a couple of months. So we were always playing, but... Um, ABC opened for us on, on, on some of those dates up north, Sheffield, Middlesbrough, some other places in between. You mentioned to me before you had some great shows where just the crowd really turned out and had lots of energy. What, what were those venues, I think, over in London, I'm guessing? Well, Marquee. Um, yeah. In, in Holland, we did some good ones, too. Um, Might have been the Paradiso in Amsterdam. But uh, at that point, um, rather on the, on the UK side, the band was, um, you know, sufficiently drilled with all that live work that, um, and I was, I was learning as well to uh, control my energy on stage um, more effectively to, you know, to, to, to manage the show. A bit better versus getting carried away with it and you right. know being exhausted at some points but uh around those points and uh we had some um shows where you know after you do a show you come off and you know when you've won the crowd yeah. and you know when you have the crowd and they're bouncing up and down in front of you and you know you're you're doing your you know the maximum part of the set it's uh it's it's a really great feeling yes live performance that's where it's at yeah i've met people uh from london here and there and and i, I just if i think about it I'm like well do you know cowboys international They're like hell yeah we love that band and it's funny how you know the the record never really made it over to the states did it well no it did because the exception and the surprise for the Virgin execs was that Virgin had like an affiliate deal with uh, Warner, um, Warner Atlantic. 
-hmm. And so Warner Atlanta got to look at everything that was coming out from Virgin, you know, the ruts, the fingerprints, Cowboys International, XTC, all of their stuff that was on their uh, portfolio. And mainly they didn't take anything, but they did take that original Sin album. And, you know, Virgin were kind of surprised, but uh, they went with it. And in the States, they weren't going to do that red transparent cover. So um, we did a photo shoot uh, for the U.S. cover. And um, that was that was, uh, you know, the Jimmy, Terry and everyone uh, in that picture. Kind of like floating heads against the dark background. WEA put that out. I love running into people that have heard it and know it because I was completely in the dark before I met you guys and I did my research. And so that um, we, we've, we've touched base on on that record and you've had had some success with that. Um, what what kind of happened to the band? How did it dissolve or whatever? What what happened as the band decrescended or was it a sudden abrupt ending? We finished up that European tour, um, came back to London, and uh, I had a change in representation. I went from having a manager to not having a manager. And uh, that really discouraged Virgin from much else, really. They, they weren't... They weren't too supportive um they were still supporting me i kind of became like a, um a virgin house pet you know yeah <laughs> um yeah i was they were you know helping me out in lots of ways they suggested i start recording a a solo album so they packed me off to oxford the manor and I was in the manor for a couple of weeks, you know? Yeah, so your your solo album, Ken Lockie, The Impossible, I've got that here as well. And what's interesting about it is it comes with a single of today, and which you originally did with Cowboys International. So we did that album with, with Dennis. Uh, we did some touring after that. And then around the beginning of 1980, um, Virgin said, okay, you go produce your own stuff. So, you know, that did a few things for them, right? They didn't have to pay a producer fee. Right. And and previously they'd fitted roles like that with Mick Glossop, Colin Thurston. Um, and then we got to Dennis. Um, but that for that Today single, they gave the job to me. So I went into a studio and... Um, you know, recorded um, two songs. One was Today and the other was Fixation, which we started playing on our shows. But for the Today song, um, I uh, I used a, a, a guy for the string arrangement. Uh, he was referred to as a fixer. And it was the same guy who'd done the uh, Eleanor Rigby stuff, but he came over to my place, listened to the, uh, the, the song and wrote a string arrangement. I told him, you know, I wanted a quartet and a harp and a brass section. And um, so 
he scored it all out. And uh, on the day he brought his team in, uh, we recorded them. They sounded great. And um, then the brass section came in and they did those same, uh, those parts on that record. And uh, that's how we got that all going on. Which version do you prefer the best now when you look back and listen to both? The original. Yeah. On the album, Steve Hillage became the producer for some of those tracks. Not all of them, but some of them. I'd, I'd done some of them myself. A song called Too Much Too Little. I, I did it at uh, Tony Visconti's studio. And uh, again, with a different string arranger, Fiacra Trench did that. Um um so S- Steve Lewis hooked me up with Steve Hillage. Steve really helped because um, I didn't have a band around me, you know. Um, so I, I had to bring in drummers and I had to bring everyone in as a session. And it's just, it's hard work when you do that versus when you've got a band, you can rehearse and you've, you've, got, some, you've got some understanding of what's there versus session guy comes in and says, what are we doing? Right. You know, and um, it's just harder to um, get those ideas going. So it was it was kind of hard, but um, Steve helped out a lot, and um, I enjoyed working with him. And soon after that gig, um, he got uh, the producer job for a Simple Minds album called Sons in Fascination. I was just going to make that segue because you have, mm. you have Jim Kerr on the, on the Impossible album. That's right. Yeah, Jim, we, we kind of traded um, favors there. Yeah, I have a copy of Sons in Fascination right here. And I Steve think when I met you a while ago, yeah. when I first met you, I had you sign it for me. But uh, you did some backing vocals on there. I did, yeah. I knew a girl then, uh Jackie and she came in we did some back and vocals and also uh, Jim Kerr was very nervous about the lyrics he'd never performed these songs on some of his songs and he he gave me the lyrics and he said go in and go in and you know record these vocals so I did I thought it was kind of an odd request actually for a lead singer to say go do my job. But um, I was a lead singer. And uh, so I took his lyrics and I sang songs like uh, Sweat and Bullet, um, Love Song. There's about four of them on there that uh, I recorded the the main line. And then with uh, some others, what they refer to as the next chorus, uh, which was a Jack Brell kind of uh, influence. Um, we we were just kind of relegated to back in vocals. I really love that record. Uh, most people, obviously, mainstream listeners know, obviously, their later hit, Don't You Forget About Me. But I really, early Simple Minds albums for the audience, you, you guys need to check those out. I, I really love them even much more so than their later hits, uh, Sons and Fascination uh, just that first in trance as mission that that it's like a 
kind of a, a odd odd groove odd meter that is and just kind of grooves over it it's just a great record so did you do the impossible first and then through steve hillage you went over and did the simple minds record after that yeah yeah okay. we were done with steve commit steve finished his commitment with me and then moved on to simple minds i think at wessex studios and uh, that's where we went and you know did those sessions so I want to I want to fast forward, but I do want to come back to the PIL, the Public Image Limited uh, stories, and I maybe want to finish with that. But I want to fast forward. So Lauren, Ken, you guys are in New York, and um, I know that Ken, you came over basically with PIL, and you guys were waiting to record. And at that was that the time basically that you and Laura met? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And down the line, fast forward a couple of years, uh, Laura, you have this awesome basically extended mix uh ep release on epic called go for your gun tell me about how that got started <laughs> oh wow and can you produce help produce that or wrote it right i did yeah well that was um ken trying to establish himself as a producer in new york city and um so we did demos and um that was one of them and uh epic actually put that out and so so you're doing go for your gun and that so did you um how how did the name come about and the uh we're gonna hear the single get on top in a little bit here we're gonna listen to that but just just tell me about the how that kind of project came to to fruition oh um i can't remember how the name came around we um i wanted to call the band chaps you know, I don't know. I just the visual of like he was a cowboy and cowboys wear chaps and he's English. And I just that was my idea. So I never. Yeah. Would have... <laughs> we were involved with Martin Burgoyne, who had done the artwork. He was a very good friend of ours and he was Madonna's roommate, actually. Unfortunately, he died of AIDS very, very early on mm. in uh, in the epidemic so you know we're familiar with pandemics because it certainly like decimated our social group we lost you know a lot of the people that we knew in the early 80s in new york city you know right. it's really the vanguard of of you know aids right martin was extremely talented as an artist and a performer and just a sweet sweet man he was really a nice guy he, and yeah yeah he did that artwork right if you see there the girl sitting there so Oh, it's beautiful, the artwork, and mm -hmm. I'm going to share it on our social media page yeah. um, for sure. It's just really, really amazing. And so the group name was kind of along those lines. It was a little, uh, you know, those kind of trashy novels, you know, the yeah. cover art for that. and Yeah, Pulp Fiction or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Spaghetti Western type right. stuff, yeah. Yeah, cool. Thank you. 
thing that passed me by. Turning over another page, I let it slip. I can only imagine being in New York City Club dancing to that in 1985. Again, that was Ken Lockie and Laura Lockie with their project Go For Your Gun. The track was called Get On Top. And now back to the interview. So Ken had enjoyed um, club, you know, dance record um, success with a record called The Dominatrix, which he did with oh my gosh. several yeah. other people. So that kind of opened the door for uh, for Go For Your Guns. And that was also, you know, um, our mutual friend, Mark Kamen's played that at Danceteria. And that was like a big thrill at the time. It's like being in a club and, you know, having it come on and seeing other people dancing to your to your music is uh that's that's really exciting yeah the dominatrix so in 1984 as you guys were adults in the club scene i was this 13 year old boy and oh, of course wow. we we're all watching the breakdancing <laughs> movies and on a certain breakdancing soundtrack i can't remember if it was a movie or it was a various album the dominatrix sleeps tonight was on there and i have a video somewhere my dad has it at his house of us in our parachute pants in the basement we are breakdancing to Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. Oh, my God. When, when I find that, I am going to send it directly to you that day. Um, I know I have it. It's somewhere. Uh, but, you know, it's so funny. Many all these years later, and I find out Ken wrote that and you guys produced it. 
it just it's so wild yeah it was a guy named Stuart arbright actually wrote uh the words he wrote the lyrics to the domination dominatrix but ken wrote the music and he sings on it and he uh you know oversaw the production with ivan ivan um who uh had hits with the uh, book of love they they had dance hits and they were a new york band so i had known ivan um, since we were teenagers, he used to work at the Hagen Doss, you know, uh, in, in Brooklyn Heights, where we both lived. And I thought he was the coolest guy in town. I really did. He's a DJ at a Mud Club and the Pyramid, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was a local DJ. That's so cool. So Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight, yeah, comes out and has success. I know for a fact it's on some various breakdancing albums. That was like the hot, super hot track. Yeah. Doc Dominatrix. Doc Dominatrix. Doc Dominatrix. Dominatrix.
Real quick, so the back to the PIL thing. So, Ken, what how, you know? Obviously, you already knew Keith Levine. You you knew Keith Levine, and and how did that uh, connection with PIL happen, and and your involvement with them? Well, so that summer in '79, um, we were you know at that recording studio, Art Vision, in central London, uh, for a couple of weeks, and um, I was friends with Keith. And had been for a year or two before. And, uh, you know, he'd come by and visit. And one day he came by and visit. And we, Virgin had booked Pill some studio time up in North London off the Holloway Road someplace. So we took, we took a cab up there and uh, we went into that studio and... Uh, just went in, uh, walked in. There was instruments already set up. And um, we just walked in and started playing. Keith was playing drums. I played some keyboards on this uh, Selena string synth. I'd never played one before. Um, and, you know, I was writing a lot of music at the time. So I had some ideas and I didn't know we were recording even. But... Um, the engineer there was this guy, Joe Dwarniak. And uh, I guess uh, he was already to record. We just walked in and, um, you know, tape was rolling and he captured it all. I didn't know too much about it. We played around in the studio for a bit and left. And then a couple of weeks later, um, I called Keith up and... Uh, he was very excited. He said that John liked um, uh, the track we did so, and wanted to put it on Metal Box. So, so we went on Metal Box. And, um, you know, it adds a lot to Metal Box because it's kind of like a contrast track with everything else they did on that album. But What's the um, track? What's the title? Uh, Radio 4. Okay, yeah. So it's, uh, it's very, it's got strings in it, the bass. There are no drums. Keith removed the drums. Keith had plenty of work to do, but um, what he did get out of that take was pretty much the key structure, you know, the way it holds in certain areas. And um, 
he added this very melodic bass. A lot of people thought it was Wobble playing bass on that, but it was it was actually Keith who played that. It's a bass melody in that song. Um, and so you uh, you recorded that, and then at some point, did you play some live shows with them over there for a bit? I did not, no. Okay. Okay. Pearl, Keith had actually lined up some sessions. We were supposed to go to Chicago. I arrived in October. We were supposed to go to Chicago in November to do recording. But um, Virgin didn't like the idea of sending $30,000 to Keith, John, and Jeanette uh, in New York without some, without there being a responsible adult, you know, <laughs> as, as a producer, you know, yep. someone they could, going to deliver something for them. Right. Um, not that they weren't capable because they produced their own stuff with Flowers of Romance themselves, but this was right on the back of that riot uh, that they had at the Ritz uh, Club in New York. Mm -hmm. They did a show there that they appeared behind the screen and um, it resulted in a riot. So Virgin were just nervous. So they delayed sending money. And, you know, the whole complexion of the whole thing started to change after a while. Yeah. Um, and it dragged on. Yeah. A long time. And it wasn't, it was over a year before we actually got in to do some recording. Although they did, they did offer some studio time at places like Electric Lady. But. Um, oh, you went in there? I did go in there, but we got nothing out of it. Pill didn't really sit down and talk about, let's do this. Right. You know, there was, we talk about lots of things, but never about a plan for, okay, let's, let's have this happen. We, there wasn't a drummer at the time. And, um, you know, we were trying out different ideas with uh, drum machines and such, synclaviers and, different computer digital means of making recordings and music. Um, so nothing came out of those sessions. And I think that trying the digital stuff didn't really work for John. John wanted the energy of a, of a live person performance. And sure. that's eventually what he went for, but uh, it took months before Virgin, um, got that other album going and from what my understanding you were just you just kind of got tired of waiting you basically walked away from it correct yeah i uh i mean i was in the studio and in the sessions but um the studio they were working at in new york park south um was i never really had a good vibe in that place the engineers in the u.s were very unlike the environment you could find in the uk where you'd have engineers who were creative and, um, you know, wanting to try things. The crew we met in New York were, you know, they'd heard a lot about Pill. And I think that they looked at us and thought, yeah, show us what you got. You know, uh, they, they weren't very, very helpful. I mean, we went in the studio. There was a, there was a grand setup in the main room. Um, nothing else. You know, so it was pretty dry. 
they just weren't that willing to um, push boundaries. And we were all about pushing boundaries. Of course. You know? Yeah, especially with Johnny Rotten in the van for crying out loud. Yeah. So basically the dissolving of that or, or your leaving of that, just kind of the, the, the combination of waiting for Virgin and, and obviously you met Laura. I know that you're still in touch with Johnny, right? Yeah, we lo- I just lost touch with him over the years. And now he's got um, his crew guards him like, you know, I don't know. Sure. Pretty, sure. pretty well. I, I, I don't know those guys. Although sure, they are sure. from Finsbury Park or something. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know who they are. But you left on good terms, isn't it? Just that he's, yeah. he's in a different crew. I, right I don't have any beef with with John, but um, I've, it's been a long time since we, we talked. Ken, you're doing uh, current music. You're doing a lot of more modern music. So I would call it in the EDM, uh, you know, category. And how can people find that music to listen to of yours, Ken? Oh, um, just on, you know, any of the streaming platforms. Oh, I also, I'm going to play dance house. I'm really glad we talked about the saxophone because Ken, you play saxophone on that, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not quite Count Basie, but uh, <laughs> no, but it's but it's really cool uh, timbre and and all that. So, well, thanks so much, you guys, and I'm I'm so glad to uh, call you my friends first, and and then find out more about you and and that amazing scene that you're in. And I'm so glad, Ken, that you are currently still doing music. And we did a little music together. I was I was happy to play a little bit of drums on your project. And thanks for having me involved on that. Lucky to do a little more soon too. I'm all about that. We love that. Okay, well, thanks for being on the program today, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, take Pleasure. care, Chad. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chad. Take care. All right. I'll put pants on now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you guys. Bye. Bye. Okay, how awesome was that? I mean, these two people, Ken and Laura Locke, so amazing. They lived it. They were in New York City at the time. I can only imagine how amazing that would have been. What a great time that would have been. We are going to close out today's episode with a track from Ken Lockie's solo record, The Impossible, and the track is called Dance House. Listen for Ken's saxophone on this one, and also Jim Kerr from Simple Minds on backing vocals. Thanks so much. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Sunday Music Soapbox. Have a great day.